How do you survive for three years in a startup, bunch of employees, no money in the bank? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant. And today, my guest is Tim Westergren, founder and now chief strategy officer of Pandora. Now, if you love to get great audio through your computer, which you obviously do since you're listening to the show, you probably already know Pandora. It's an online radio station. You tell it what kind of music you like. You say, hey, I love uh, Miles Davis into the system, and it'll automatically recommend music and play music that you like based on those tastes. It's become extremely popular, one of the largest internet radio options available. But it's got a really long and interesting history. It was started in January 2000. So that means it's been around for nine years now. And over that time, it started as something totally different. They ran out of cash. They kind of got by for three years. Originally, it was just data. Then it was going to be kiosks that you'd use in the store to find out what the next uh, song would be. But it finally ended up being this great internet radio station, yet their survival has still been challenged by the industry, which wants to charge more and more money for these online radio broadcasters to play their music. It's a real battle of a startup story, so I think you'll love it. Enjoy. I'd like to thank our new partner, FreshBooks, for sponsoring this episode. FreshBooks is an easy-to-use online invoicing service that saves you time, gets you paid faster, and makes you look Fortune 500 professional. To learn more, sign up. Go to FreshBooks.com, and for a limited time, enter the code VENTURE to save $20 on your paid subscription, or go click their link from our website. I use FreshBooks to invoice sponsors, and it leaves me with more time to make this show for you. Tim, thanks for coming on Venture Voice. My pleasure. So tell me, to start from the beginning, I saw that you graduated uh, You graduated Stanford, mm -hmm. and you studied recording technology. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little about what made you take that, you know, kind of wh where you were in life when you chose that, that focus, and what kind of drove you to do that? Well, I, I had been a musician from a very young age. I, I, I began piano as a seven or eight-year-old um, and developed a real passion for music and was pretty much self-taught uh, until I got to college. I, I took, you know, the very rudimentary high school music classes, but, you know, more or less I was just learning on my own. And uh, when I got to college, I, I sort of finally developed a real desire to understand the kind of musical underpinnings of what I was doing. So I began taking theory courses, uh, composition cl classes, and there was a pretty fast-developing world of technology, recording technology, digital technology, um, when I was in college, and it just really fascinated me. And there was actually a facility at Stanford that was doing a lot of very interesting cutting-edge work, and it intrigued me. So were you thinking all about all of this as kind of plan B to being a rock star and like actually making it as a music artist yourself, or was this really your passion? Uh, when I was... By the time I graduated, I knew I wanted to be a musician, um, and I'd say my first desire was to be a performer, and so it's what I did when I got out of school, started playing in bands. I wouldn't say that I kind of thought about my my uh, 
recording skills or my knowledge of that space as being vocational. It's just something I always loved to do, and, I, and it was a useful skill to have to help me as a musician. Uh, never thought I would wind up certainly doing what I'm doing right now, but but uh, you know, kind of fell into th- one thing after another. So, so where did it start to change? Like, which, like, you know, you're seeing all this technology at Stanford. What was there? Like, one piece of technology that kind of captured your heart, or was it the way that they all came together? What, you know, what, what was the real hook there for you? Well, <clears throat> I guess the, the 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 my various experiences sort of coalesced when I was in my late twenties, early thirties, after I had graduated and spent my twenties playing in bands and sort of getting a pretty good look at the world of the working musician, you know, all these very talented but invisible artists around, all of whom were taking advantage of digital technology to create fabulous sounding CDs. So I I was aware of how potent a weapon this recording, this this sort of desktop recording had become for musicians, but they all still face the same problem of, you know, exposure. And and I had been a film composer for a while as well and, and, and as a film composer I I spent a lot of time thinking about how music was constructed and how why it has the effect that it has and so on. And and so sort of the all of these things, sort of digital recording, the working musician and their sort of lack of promotion and the my understanding of musicology, music theory, composition and sort of music taste and so on, all sort of collectively inspired this idea for the music genome project. So what was the idea exactly? Like I I mean we know what it is now, but mm. when when it first came to you, what how did you describe it before <laughs> at the time? On a paper napkin back then? Uh so really what it was trying to do was to take a form of music taste profiling that I used as a film composer where I, where I would actually interview film directors by playing music for them and getting their feedback. Uh their thumb up thumb down essentially to music. Uh, to glean their musical taste. And so I had kind of an informal method of, you know, understanding someone's musical DNA. And the idea was just to bottle that, you know, to write it down and marry it with technology to create sort of a recommendation tool. So when you had this idea, did you think that you could actually get it done? Like, you know, there's just so much music out there. It seemed pretty far-fetched from the very beginning. I mean, the the method we use, there's only one way to do it, which is to have a trained musician sit down and listen to a song several times and very deliberately score hundreds of musical attributes. So there's no shortcuts to it. And there is a, an immense amount of music in the world, and it takes you know 10 to 15 minutes for the shortest pop song to do this analysis. So I, it had a lot about it that really was harebrained and, and unscalable and, and seemingly foolish. Um, but I, th- I I had such a strong sense that it would work and that it was solving a really important and universal problem that it was worth doing it. To that what level. year was that that you had the, the, first had the idea? 1999, yeah. And so you had this, what was it like when you told it to your friends, to friends in business, to friends in music? Did they say that's a great idea, or did most think you were crazy, or were they offended that you would classify music so narrowly? It varied. I, you know, a good number of people thought it was you know kind of an interesting idea theoretically, but completely impractical. Um, one fellow I shared it with in particular was very enthusiastic and became one of my co-founders, a guy named John Kraft, um, and I think he saw the same promise in it. 
but there were plenty of naysayers to be sure. So you, the idea struck you in '99. Mm-hmm. What was what was kind of your business prowess up until that point? Like, had you do you feel like you learned a lot through the music business, or were you still kind of uh, naive about the business world? Well, I thought I was naive about it when I started. I thought I had no business experience, but in hindsight, I think managing a band and then being a self-employed film composer, those are two great training grounds for any form of entrepreneurship. And what I learned managing a collection of artists and trying to sort of promote a band and, and do all those things, it's no different than any startup. And in fact, dealing with creative personalities gives you some, I think, some added rigor to your training of managing people, which, in my opinion, is ultimately the single greatest challenge of building a business, is attracting, retaining, and managing you know, the, ta- the best talent you can. So I actually think I had great training for it. It took me a little while to realize that those skills were actually relevant. Yeah, it's interesting. We had uh, Derek Sivers on the show sure. a couple mm-hmm. times, and he basically said the exact same thing kind of coming from a band background to a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he and he he's, you know, he built it from scratch. A great thing he accomplished there. Yeah, it's a very cool story. Mm. So uh, so when you had this idea, so tell me what that was like, you know, it's like I guess like putting together the band, you were putting together your team and you said you shared the idea with the person who became your co-founder, like what what did the team look like before you were able to start moving on this or did you start moving kind of simultaneous to building the team? Yeah, kind of simultaneously. I, I started building the very first genome as we were kind of gearing up to write a business plan and and uh, actually by build building a the genome, you mean you I were was actually... writing it down. Okay. Yeah, beginning to sort of uh, script out the uh, the taxonomy, and uh, we hired a third person. A co- kind of became our third co-founder, a guy named Will Glazer, who was our chief technology officer, and brought the sort of mathematical and computer science uh, capabilities to the equation. And the first sp- sort of uh, phase of launching the company was was just euphoric. You know, it's so exciting. You're, you're, it's a brand new, fresh idea. You have a tr- tremendous amount of energy and enthusiasm for it. We raised some venture money fairly quickly early on. And so we, we, we rented a one-room studio apartment and, and started hiring really talented people. And, and you just have a... It, there's, there's something very, very energizing about having this wide open uh, idea that you've got to figure out, and and you figure out every little piece of it. Um, it's very it's very uh, invigorating. And you were able to raise the venture money. So this was uh, did the venture money come in in '99 or was that March of 2000? Okay, so, so we March. sort of incorporated in January of 2000 and went out fundraising beginning that year. And took us a couple months to raise the money. And what was that process like? Did it go pretty smoothly, or was that a challenge? I would say it went relatively quickly. Uh, we we raised that money kind of just got in in time because the you know March is when things really began to collapse, and I think we got kind of the last of the the sort of venture, truly venture investing um, of that time. So it was kind of the good fortune to raise that money. And use the money to put together the business rather than yeah. have to put together the business and yeah, I think, then raise some money. I think the door closed behind us in terms <laughs> of investing at that at that time. And it gave us enough cash to build the prototype. And at the time, was the company just called the Music Genome Pro- Project, or did you already have the name Pandora? 
I don't know exactly when we f formally named it, but but the first name of the company was Savage Beast Technologies. We didn't actually mm -hmm. become Pandora uh, in product or in name until about five years later. Wow. Mm. And so back then, what was the business plan? I understand it was different than what it looks yeah, like. Yeah, we thought we were building a technology that we'd license to other services as a recommendation tool. So whether you were a portal or a retailer or a website of some kind, we would provide you with intelligent recommendations that you could use to help your users, customers navigate these catalogs you were trying to sell. So you were saying it's kind of euphoric time, few of you, you rented the studio, you had cash in the bank, mm -hmm. times were good. How mm -hmm. long did that last? <laughs> that lasted about a year, I'd say. Um, I think a year after we started, we began to sense that uh, money was going to be a challenge because we our, our bank accounts started to get low. Um, we had built a prototype, but we're selling it into a marketplace, music retail and music portals that had really been suffering. You know, began the the sort of the dot com house of cards had begun to unravel, and uh, so we began to see trouble on the horizon. And I think by mid two thousand and one, we were in sort of full-blown, uh, not panic mode, but we were, uh, we were, we realized that we had uh, a difficult task ahead of us. And, and, and by, by sort of the second half of 01, we really were pretty much out of cash. And that began sort of the march of death for three years. <laughs> uh, so the second half of 01, you're out of cash. What, what did you have at that time? Like how much music did you have? Ca you know, like how would you describe your assets uh, at that point? I don't remember the exact size of the database at that point, but it was you know tens of thousands of songs. It was actually enough to demonstrate the technology. So we had a very compelling demo. You would type in a song into this little web app, and it would bring back recommendations, and it worked pretty well. I think it had a real sort of aha kind of um, impact on people. Um, but we had uh, we had we had actually we had successfully licensed it to Borders. So we had our first customer, um, but there wasn't much money in that deal. So you're still losing money at that point. Yeah, we had virtually no revenue. It was it was all cash out the door. So how low did the bank account get? Oh, we went to zero. I mean, we, we latter part of 01, we began deferring salaries, or little by little, sort of more and more until nobody was getting paid. And and we spent that we we were, we were in that condition for almost three years wow. until March of two thousand and four. We were essentially unfunded. We we managed to raise some bridge financing, a little bit of it in O two, but um, we were essentially broke for three years. Wow. And so what what's that process like? Like how many people did you have before you ran out of money? How many of the people were able to stick around? How many went away? How'd that transform the company? Well, all told, about 50 people deferred some, par some amount of salary in the course of those three years, and it varied a lot. Uh, some people had more of an ability to hang on and work longer or a desire to, and there are others that didn't last very long as soon as we stopped paying salaries. Uh, so it varied quite a bit. But collectively, the company deferred, you know, about a million and a half dollars of salary. So people really did sacrifice an awful lot. I see this is kind of an alternative form of funding. Not, yeah, yeah, it's, not a fun it's one, debt but. financing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh -huh. And what was life like for you personally 
over this period, like having to ask people to defer salaries. Yeah, it was very trying. I mean, the, there are there are many aspects of that kind of experience that are difficult. You know, the you feel your own personal pressure and the sort of nervousness of financial uncertainty, but you also feel a tremendous sense of obli- obligation to everybody around you, who you've convinced to you know uh, embark on this adventure. And as a leader, your your job winds up being convincing them to you know invest and sacrifice more and more to keep it going, and so you feel responsible, and and that adds a tremendous layer of stress on top of everything. So it was it was definitely the most difficult per, uh, phase of my own life. Hmm. Did you ever have moments of self doubt that you know here you are with this kind of nice demo and but you have no money and you can't convince anyone else to put new money in? Yeah, I think I mean, there were certainly there was plenty of times when I thought we really were done and that I'd made a huge mistake by not necessarily by launching the company but by continuing for so long with and and, and convincing other people to do the same thing. Uh and I thought that I I was going to wind up feeling that I had really uh led people down on a fool's errand. Um I never stopped believing in the underlying idea. Uh, I, I always thought that if we could hang on long enough, eventually something would happen. And that's kind of what part of what kept me going. Hmm. And so what were you able to accomplish over those three years? Principally, we were able to build the genome. And that, you know, in '04 in when we sort of finally raised a big uh, amount of investment, what we had at that point, we had no business, but we had this incredible piece of intellectual property, this massive collection of songs, sort of manually analyzed songs that that represented something very unique and differentiated. So, so it's basically a million and a half dollars worth of like artists willing to work for free. Yeah, yeah I mean, there were there were software engineers. There was there were a whole bunch of yeah. people that contributed to it, but fundamentally, yeah, it was this this kind of this massive database hand-built database and and a a set of very sophisticated uh mathematical algorithms and sort of software layers uh, on top of it that we had at that point hmm. how how is that sell because it's still not you know it's usually like you build users or you build customers or things that are really easy to explain to investors or even you build a, a chip that processes faster here it's kind of this piece of intellectual property that, you know, is still something that's not proven that could make money at the time or, you know, unproven to um, have kind of a tangible value. Yeah, I mean, the investors that came in in 2004 invested with, I think, a general belief that there was a way to make money off this. It hadn't been figured out yet, but... I think they all looked at it the same way we did, which is, you know, music discovery and sort of personalization is a huge problem. And there's a big appetite for it, an unmet appetite among listeners. And this thing we built was the perfect way to solve it. So we just had to figure out how to bring it to market. Mm. But there was no specific prescription at that point. We had to try some things out. And what was it that allowed you to raise the money in '04 instead of in '02 or '03? I think there were a handful of things. Um, we had signed a couple pretty impressive licensing deals. So AOL, we had a multi-year deal with them. Uh, Best Buy had selected our product for 
a pretty extensive pilot program, and so we had we had to sign Tower Records and Borders and Barnes and Noble, um, and so there was a there was some pretty good endorsement, paying endorsement from customers, and also uh, you know we had demonstrated I think a real entrepreneurial capability as a company, just sort of the the ability to survive that uh, was I think impressive in the in the eyes of investors. And so they were investing in the team, you know, this this group of investor of you know, entrepreneurs who just wouldn't give up. And what are I think now is a good time to ask uh, with the economy being how it is. Like, were there any aside from convincing employees to defer salaries, any other tips for kind of or things you did that were really effective in being able to survive that long without any cash? Well, I think that uh, if I was to distill down what were the principal reasons we survived. I think part of it was leadership. I think that, you know, myself, John, Will at various times were able to just demonstrate and, and, and provide confidence inspiring sort of tireless leadership for everybody. And that I think we, we were able to inspire people. We were able to, um, uh, I think convince them that it was a good idea that, that, that it was worth sticking around. And I think there was a lot of just raw leadership there. But I also think that, one of the sort of psychological dimensions of this is it's kind of like gambling. You know, when you when you get down a few hands, you t are very tempted to gamble a few more hands and try and get it back. And I think when you've invested a year, two years, or more of your time without getting paid, you you feel really invested and you really want to make it work. So I think people don't like to walk away from that. Um, I think that's part of what happens as well. And it's funny because if it, if it didn't work. You could probably give uh, you need probably give that advice for why you should have quit sooner, but since it did work, that kind of played in your favor. Yeah, I can't I can't blame anybody who back then decided to quit. That was a perfectly rational decision to make, um, and the company should not have survived. Uh, really, we were dead uh, for a pretty extended period of time. We were financially insolvent, you know, on paper for two years. Um, uh, but I think we just, you know, refused to call it quits. Then what was it like going out to VCs and saying, you know, hey, we have a million and a half in debt to our employees? Like, were they like that, you know, we're happy to write this check knowing that, you know, a million and a half goes to pay back employees? Or? Well, that was a negotiation. Um, we did pay everybody back. Uh, it was just part of the package, you know, and, and, and in, in the end it was – kind of weighing their overall enthusiasm for the product and the future against the various liabilities we had. Because we were being sued as well for, for having violated labor laws, and you know, there was a lot of hair on the investment. But I think the, the sort of opportunity outweighed those problems, which were all solvable with some money. Um, so I think that's the way investors viewed it. And was it around where it was competitive, or did you just kind of find one group? We actually had a competing term sheets, which was very useful. We're able to protect our interests a little bit. <laughs> That's great. And then the the data I pulled up shows that it was a seven point eight million dollar round. Yeah, it was. It was. I think it was closer to nine all in. But mm -hmm. okay, yeah, so close to nine in uh, 04. And so, what was the business plan at that point that you raised the money on? Like, what do you tell these people you're going to go out and do? Well, we actually were focused on kiosks at that point. So we were we were delivering. Uh, web-enabled kiosks into record stores. Best Buy and uh, Borders had them. Um, we thought that was kind of where our future lay at the time. 
So you take the money, you're all set to go, be the kiosk king of the world. And what happened? Well, fortunately, we hired a guy named Joe Kennedy to be our CEO. Uh, I hired him a few months after the round. It was something we had kind of collectively agreed to do when we took the investment. And um, he kind of led the company through a pretty substantial revisioning, did a very comprehensive survey of the market. And, and we kind of all agreed that the, the best opportunity lay in radio. And so we repurposed the, the business, um, recognizing partly that our existing business, the kiosk and retail business, did not have a happy future. And we need to do something different. That working through partners was inherently challenging. You know, it's very hard to be a prisoner to the priorities and and execution of other customers. And broadband penetration had grown dramatically. That really was a win, was wind in the sails of streaming audio, and and online radio was starting to really surface. And our product was sort of tailor made for it. It's a song-based analysis system, so it's perfect for playlist stuff. Uh, so it kind of all made sense. And once we launched, it just it was clear it fit like a glove. Was this something that uh, – was this his idea, Joe's idea? Was this like an idea you guys had cooked up but never pursued? Or where kind of this idea to be your own internet radio uh, kind of portal? Or You know, Joe led that effort for sure. And, you know, it, it was his sort of strategic instinct to go after that. And then, a, you know, a, a group of us kind of collectively helped shape the product and decide what it was going to be and what it would look like and how it would work. And, and that was a, you know, a team effort. So kind of to back up now, like the thought to bring in a new CEO here, you started the company, you were the CEO through these kind of, well, first in the good time, then mm -hmm. kind of in these grueling years with no cash and you brought it through. So... You know, at this time, what was your thought about why you shouldn't be the CEO still going forward? Um, I was actually ready to. I've been the CEO, and I, I was I was tired of the job. It wasn't. It's it's not a job that I really wanted, um, and I think part of uh, part of the way, part of the most one of the most important things that and entrepreneurs can, can do to succeed in companies is recognize what they're good at and what they aren't good at, and and to. Um, uh, build a team and assign roles within your team based on people's competencies. And if you do that and you put people in, in the places they should be and do what they should do, then you really optimize the business. And in my case, you know, my time is best spent uh, doing sort of strategy and evangelism, you know, being sort of a, a uh, the, the, the face and voice and, um, you know, marketing engine for the company it's something i really enjoy doing that i'm good at and that um uh, uh sort of comparatively was the best at in the company so that's the place i should be not you know pouring over spreadsheets and preparing board books and doing a lot of operational stuff which is less of my passion hmm. and what was that transition like like you know it's uh I'm sure for many entrepreneurs who are still the CEOs of their companies, it's hard to just imagine. You know, it's one thing we got fired, but it's another like walk back into the office on you know Tuesday when Monday you were the CEO, and now you walk in same desk, same clothes, and you're not CEO. Well, I think that's it's often a very difficult transition. I mean, most companies don't, most founders don't survive those transitions, 
And I can see why, because you really have to cede control of your company to a brand new person. And I think in the case of Joe and I, it works because we have different roles, and there are roles that we each enjoy. We also respect the contributions of the other person and recognize them as valuable. Um, and uh, and so there's a real symbiosis. Um, and you know neither of us have monster egos, so uh, we're able to let the other person play the roles they need to play. Um, and and I think it's as simple as that. You know the the and and, and I when I hired him, I I hired him partly because I you know I I, I he was you know wickedly smart but also um very low on the ego side and having in his professional life accomplished quite a bit so he, he had this rare combination of competence but uh, humility and and I, I felt that was one of the most important characteristics for the ceo to have and how do you find him a uh, headhunter <laughs> <laughs> so so you hire joe he says guys you know this is all wrong mm -hmm. We got to build our own radio station. We have to be a consumer-facing brand. What you know? What what kind of steps did it take to to do that? Really, kind of ambitious transition and kind of add on to the data layer like a whole consumer product. Well, it was a year-long process, more or less. Um, we you know started in kind of the summer of '04 and launched it in the fall of '05, and it was. It was input from a lot of people, from user experience designers, UE designers, software, sort of and like algorithm work, um, a lot of musicological work, uh, you know, a bunch of people sort of collectively uh, and cooperatively uh, shaping the product and thinking about how to bring it to market and what to call it and all those things. So it just was a big, big team effort. And we, we were fortunate. We've just had just both talented capable people but also folks that are that are very functional as team members and i think that's one of our greatest strengths that that that, that pandora is a place where where um it is a very functional team you know it's not one person controlling everything it's it's a bunch of remarkably talented people who can work well together so you're in this long kind of product development cycle where you kind of shut yourself off for this year from the outside world, mm -hmm. you know, no customers, no users. How do you, you know, did you do anything to kind of try to keep it in check or to kind of get feedback from the outside world on what they'd want? Like how did you kind of get feedback to know if something you built or was good or not or doing it this way was the right way or you should do it this other way? I think that, in the beginning, by and large, we built it based on what we thought it should be, less than what we were told every day by some kind of ongoing market research process. We did market test it once we built our first version and had sort of user testing, and we watched people uh, use it. But I would say the, the sort of bulk of the design and of it was really done kind of within our four walls. So it's kind of moving from first principle, just this is what I think it should be. And exactly. Building it. Mm -hmm. And was that, when you took that and then you did user testing, did you get it pretty close to what ended up working, or did you have to rework a lot of things? Uh, we made a couple pretty important changes, but uh, you could recognize the pre- and post-version of Pandora. Like, I don't think we sort of felt we'd gotten it all wrong. We, we ha there are a few things we had to do that were very important in terms of communicating what the service did and how it worked to listeners. Um, but 
It was pretty true to our original vision. And was the timetable accurate? Did you think it was going to take a year, or did you think it was going to take less than worth? I don't remember how long we th- I thought it would take. I don't think we, we didn't. I don't think we ever thought, "Gosh, we're way behind." So we we were probably sort of pretty consistent, pretty much on schedule. So when did when did you know you were ready with it? When were you like, "Okay, this is something we're going to go launch and set the launch date and prepare everything"? Well, kind of the end of the summer, August September. You know, we had August September in oh five oh five. We. Uh, it people had been using it a little bit and, and, and then we launched kind of friends and family version of it and it just it was immediately exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean people gave us great feedback. A lot of people began using it that, that friends was in of friends. September then or Yeah, September, October. Okay. Uh friends began using it, friends of friends and, and you could just feel the sort of excitement about it. And so we you know, we kind of hastened the launch and And then I saw you raise more money in uh, October oh five? Uh, November of '05, but yeah, or right so, around then. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So we we raised and money. That round was uh, another twelve million, right? Um, and then you know launched it in November. Launched it free, uh, the free version of Pandora. So you're kind of launching it. Was that kind of simultaneous to closing the money? Or did yeah, right around the same first? time. I guess I have to kind of really go back and look at. But but we we raised around shortly after we went free and. You know, it just took off like a rocket ship. Yeah. And how – what were you kind of think? first of all, like how big was the company? Like when you did the launch, like what were kind of your resources? Did you just kind of open it up or did you have a big team and a big staff to really go into You were about 60 it? people at that okay. point, maybe 65. Um, you know, a group of engineers, a big group of music analysts, um, but a very skeletal biz dev and marketing staff, of course. Um, so mostly engineers and, and uh, musicians. And did you just launch it, or did you launch it at an event? Did you hold a press conference? Like you know, we it, we actually we had we had sort of a dream launch. We didn't have to. We never we've never spent marketing money on Pandora. We just gave it out to a bunch of people, including influencers, bloggers, and you know, got a hold of it, and they just they became our evangelists. And some very prominent bloggers wrote about it, and that spread. And before we knew it, we were riding this just tidal wave of new listeners, which has not slowed down. In fact, it's mm. speeded up. <laughs> so, so you launch, and that was kind of. And I guess this was really the moment. I imagine for you, after, I guess at that point, after five years working on this thing, where you didn't have to sit somebody in a conference room and convince them it was a good idea. Like you had validation from the outside world. Right. It was, uh, I guess, six years at that point. In, 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 early two, in early 2006, like a few months after we launched, when Pandora was just, you know, it was sort of, the growth was hard to deny um, that, you know, I began to have moments where I would step back and, and think, wow, this is really beginning to, to accelerate. So what was, you know, so what was going through your mind then, right? Like, in, you know, what do you feel like you needed to do? What would Joe feel like he needed to do? How is, well, what was going on uh, in the boardroom? Um, it, it was a fun time, of course, because, you know, it's, you're growing like a weed and then you're kind of trying to keep up with the growth and it's very exciting. And, and we began to formulate kind of our communications plan, like how would, what would we be as a company? How would we talk to listeners? And, and I think had a pretty clear sense of that from the beginning. And and my own role quickly gravitated towards that, and I found a really happy home there. Um, 
And the pieces of the puzzle all sort of started to fall into place. And I think there's a reason why that happens. I think that that's not just luck. I think, you know, you're, if you make good choices with your personnel and your product, they'll tend to line up. Um, and I, I, I do remember thinking, and I still feel now, that, that we have a, a, a great alignment between who works for us and um, the kind of people they are, the kind of skills they have, and what we're trying to do as a company. Mm. You know, this great alignment there. So where are the big priorities kind of going? Once the things started taking off, were you just like, okay, we just need to keep the servers running? Were you thinking we have to kind of accelerate this and grab as much market share as possible? Were you thinking we got to figure out how to make money? I would say growth was our focus in the beginning. Growth and also uh, the building of a brand and of our identity. Because we, we thought a lot about, okay, this is growing so fast. Uh, we need to, to make sure that... Um, uh, we have retain a strong sense of who we are, and and uh, as people are discovering Pandora and coming to know us, we want them to to um, uh, to feel that we're a company they can believe in and and you know uh, be loyal to and and be um, long term users of. So uh, we we th we spent a lot of energy thinking about our voice and 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 sort of what we would do to communicate with people. When you say like be loyal, were you finding, you know, what were the metrics you were looking at at the time? Was this like sheer growth or were you looking at returning users? Yeah, it's churn and, and, and growth and, and uh, level of usage and, and engagement. You know, what is, the, what is the sort of tenor of the conversation that we're hearing from people? There's lots of ways to kind of check that. What were some of the key, were there like, you know, your do you have like a strong philosophy with metrics? Like some people just choose like, one or two real key metrics they're going to get everyone focused on, or was it a little more holistic? In the beginning, it was holistic. You know, now we're at revenue per hour. <laughs> you know, that's an yeah. important metric for us. Uh, but I would say at the beginning, it was really a little bit more holistic. Are we growing fast, and are, do we have a good brand? Do people feel good about the company mm -hmm. as users? And that was sort of how we thought about it. And jumping back to uh, 05 when you late 05 when you launched this thing, what was the original idea for how to make like did you put did you put a lot of thought into how to make money off it and what was the original idea for how to make money off it? Well, we thought it would be a subscription business and actually launched it as such in the very beginning, but that only lasted a few weeks. So we realized when nobody was willing to give us their credit card that we were going to have to make it free and ad supported. So within a month and a month and a half, we knew that's where we were, were headed and, and hired our first ad salesperson in 05 ah. to get that process started. And so that's uh, it's kind of a funny thing because now everyone's talking about subscription businesses again. <laughs> so it'd be interesting to hear, like, you just found, you kind of threw it out there and just n such a low percentage of people are willing to take out the credit card that uh, you gave up. Yeah, it just wasn't happening. It was pretty clear people didn't want to pay for radio. They hadn't been paying for radio for... 50 years and we weren't going to change that um and uh so the writing was on the wall it was hard to, to, to deny that and were you were you um how'd that make you feel about the business because uh we'll get into it more soon mm -hmm. but you know you knew then like it's not free you know it's not free to be doing this you have to pay royalties you have to pay bandwidth it's not like being uh yeah. a news website where you just kind of serve page views and mm -hmm. can make money at any uh no matter how much advertising you sell. Yeah, I mean, the, the, our understanding of our advertising business has evolved over time. We, didn't, we frankly didn't know how we were going to do it when we first decided to switch to free. 
and we've just responded to the opportunity. And there have been some things we've learned that have been very um, positive about the way people use Pandora and, um, and that, that uh, lend itself to a good advertising business. Uh, the fact that people interact with it a lot, they thumb songs and skip songs and create stations and are going back to it a lot, so it generates advertising impressions. You know, the fact that it's an auditory experience, so uh, the value of Pandora doesn't compete with the advertising the way it does on, say, a news website where you're trying to distract somebody from the reason they're there. Um, the fact that it's very targeted, that when people register, they give us you know, age, gender, zip code, and we know the kind of music they're listening to. So these kind of building blocks we learned over time and have come to see just how valuable they are for, for you know, commanding a premium with our advertising products. What was the very first ad sale that you did? Apple iTunes. $10,000 campaign, yeah. <laughs> and it all built from there. Uh-huh. So I uh, I did something new with this episode where I, I I usually don't announce the guests I have. I announce it on Twitter and ask for questions. Okay. So one of the questions I got is as followed. It kind of plays the devil's advocate, which is how can you create ad engagement with naturally disengaged audience? So I imagine that questioner kind of – turns on Pandora and goes back to working on his email and browsing yeah. other websites, Facebook, whatever he's on. Well, it's a it's a great question and it's it's was the $64,000 question when we launched and as it turns out, we have an engaged audience. That's not a problem for us. In fact, we generate way more inventory than we need um because people consistently come back to the site. They do it about 6 times an hour and that's been a consistent average for years. So in other words, if they listen to an hour of radio, they come back six times either to skip songs or to do something. see the name of the song or vote on it. So each time they do that, it gives us a chance to put up an ad. Okay, and then you're able to track, like, you know, if the person's listening but they're actually on another website, you can tell that they've come back to click. To Yeah, so we know when they do something by clicking that they're there, and that alerts us and, and, and tells us to serve an ad. Got it. And then does the advertiser only get charged? The advertiser only get charged. Right. When so there's no wastage at all. Engages. Exactly. Got it. And how did it? Uh, how did it ramp between '05 and now? Like, what was? We're doubling annually. We did 20 million in revenue last year, and you know, it's all going in the right direction. It's it's it takes a lot of effort. We have a 45 person advertising sales team. I mm-hmm. mean, there's a real lot of. We're really leaning into this yeah. part of our business, but the platform is clearly there. And now tell me about the cost. So, like, let's take last year, for example. You did $20 million in ad revenue. Mm. On the flip side, how much did it cost to stream it? And then how much did it cost to pay the, uh, the royalties? Yeah, I can't really reveal too much of our internal cost structure. We're not profitable, and that's largely because of the performance fees that we pay, the, 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 the per-song fees, which remain kind of our biggest, you know, nut. Yeah. Um, so yeah. tell me about that. I think, I mean, to most people, it's kind of uh, a mystery, like how those get set, who sets them. Yeah, they're obviously done. learned about this world. <laughs> yeah. We operate under a federal statute. So our rates, uh, sort of our, all of the, the sort of rules and regulations around our industry are, are determined by a, a panel of judges in Washington. And they do every five years, they arbitrate the, the rates. And um, and so we. And these pay. are just appointed. Uh, this is an appointed panel, or right, right. It's unelected we, okay, in the copyright I'll... office, um, and they hear out both sides and make a make a decision. And and the last ruling that came out a couple of years ago was just really misguided. So we've been fighting this 
rate thing for quite a while. It's, you know, it's just about to get to resolve, but it's been painful. Hmm. And now I know last year you sent out a letter kind of saying if these guys up it, like we're out of business. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a hell of a thing for a, uh, for, uh, you know, an engaged founder to say, right? Cause usually you go out there and you say, no matter what guys, we're not going out of business. Mm-hmm. Investors have faith. Customers have faith. So what, um, you know, what led you to, to kind of make that statement and get that involved with it? Well, this was a do or die issue for us. And, and we really had no other recourse because the, the, the uh, committee refused to hear an appeal, as did the labels. They weren't interested in renegotiating. And the federal uh, court appeals process takes years. So we had to go to the public. And the only way really to motivate people to do something is to be very frank about the consequences if nobody acts. And so we, we knew, we decided that, that we had to be very forthright and, and um, uh, blunt about the consequences for us. Um, and we knew that you know Pandora was the only company that was going to be able to fight this fight because no other company had the kind of user base we had, um, no other sort of independent you know, webcaster could mount this sort of a campaign. So we've kind of shouldered that responsibility in the last few years. Now, some people criticized Pandora uh, at the time. I'm not sure if still you had no uh, in-stream advertising. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you just display, have display advertising if someone goes back to your site. But some people would say, hey, look, you know, on the radio, on all these other mediums, they'll mm-hmm. actually just put an ad between songs. Advertisers will pay a lot more for that in-stream ad. So here you are not making saying you're going to go out of business mm-hmm. and not and leaving money on the table. So what, you know, what's your kind of response to the the people who said that? Well, uh it's 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 certainly a understandable comment, but the the reality is the highest value advertising is the stuff we've been selling, interactive advertising. It's where the money is right now. Audio advertising is coming for web radio and we have a team of people that are now chasing it, but it takes a little while to develop. And we we'll, we will sort of try and be at the forefront of that and, and will be um, to, to, to sell as much as we can. But the advertising world itself is not yet tooled up to deliver 10 to 15 second audio interstitials into web radio. It's just not. And so you take, you go after the money that's there and you sequentially tackle new buckets of revenue as they come along. So it's really more a matter of timing and the, the existence of a marketplace for us to take advantage of than it is any kind of aversion we have to putting audio in. We fully intend to, but the interactive ads are by far the most valuable and the place we should you know, logically put our efforts. Hmm. And now you have your issue with this, uh, with this federal panel. Mm-hmm. What's, your, you know, what's your kind of take on the industry, you know, on the record labels and on the RIAA? Well, the the record industry obviously is going through a lot of is, is very challenged right now for reasons that have nothing to do with web radio. I think we're part of the solution, not the problem. Um, but it means that I think the industry is pretty frantically looking for ways to protect its business, which is perfectly natural. And I think there's been a um, a mistaken sense that uh, that webcasters was a place where they could find that money and webcasters are certainly like us happy to pay what we can um uh but 
the the business doesn't support the level of taxation that that they're pushing for um, and if in addition to sort of that radio is a tremendously promotional tool and it's an important piece of the ecosystem so you could as a musician or as a label say you know what you're not paying me enough I don't think you should be in business but that's counterproductive because you do want the radio around it's the radio that 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 gives people exposure to you know your artists that's how they find out about you it's it's a lifeblood of of musicians in fact if you look at our inbox at pandora every day it is chock full of cds from musicians dying to get into pandora everybody knows it's promotional so there has to be a balance struck between the the things the, the money that we pay out but the benefits that we also deliver to to artists so that balance is being sorted out kind mm -hmm. of as we speak so kind of in the middle of all this crazy stuff in the music industry now, uh, one friend of mine, David Pakman, who's yeah, now sure VC at uh, Ben Rock, wrote, like, I'm not investing in any music companies. I used to be at eMusic, you know, and kind of cites Pandora as like, hey, these guys could still go out of business at a moment's notice. And, you know, even the other, some other successful arts upstarts like Hype Machine haven't been funded, uh, you know, because in this precarious position, like, you know, you think it's wise to, well, to have started or to start a business in music now with all these kind of pressures? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a challenge to find the business that works within the, the industry as it exists right now. Uh, there are lots of landmines for companies involved in music that have to do with rights, that have to do with uh, direct licensing, that have to do with you know various cost structures. But with a completed a negotiation on the statutory licensing front, I'm very bullish about what Pandora can do. And I think we've avoided a lot of the other problems that, that have plagued uh, um, music services uh, and startups and so on over the last few years, one of which is the world of direct licensing, which is inherently very challenging for for companies. Um, and I think if you look at the history of startups and technology companies, that has been one place in which they've consistently fallen down. Um, so uh, I understand David's skepticism about the space. And I know that he's had some rough experiences over the years with it. Um, but I, I, I think we've, we've carved a great spot. We just need to get this one thing out of the way. It's not small, but we'll get it done. So what's uh, kind of the snapshot of the company now? I know you did a, a layoff in October mm -hmm. from, I think it was 140 to 120 employees. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask about that, but it doesn't sound too bad now compared to the uh, – Compared to your last experience of having to defer salary, <laughs> yeah, that was a, this was a picnic compared <laughs> to that. So, um, but but so, like, what's the snapshot right now? You know, is the how's the bank account looking? Well, I I've, again, I feel very optimistic about the business once this thing is is resolved, and and Pandora's you know advertising revenue is going all in the right direction because we've built a real, a genuine ad platform, and I think that the position that we've that we've reached now is the is the result of a lot of good decisions and a lot of I think, you know, uh, a lot of strategic choices we've made over the years that have sort of collectively put us where we are. The, the fact that we have the Music Genome Project is something that's really an important part of our business on a number of levels. It's it's important because it makes our radio stations good. Mm -hmm. It's important because it causes people to interact with the site frequently that generates the advertising uh, inventory. 
it's important because it's it's a way of surfacing independent music which is becoming an ever larger sort of player in the popular music conscience so uh it's not easy to get where we are but i think we we were in that we're, we're in one of these sort of spaces that works in the current music ecosystem so mm. i'm actually very very uh, excited and optimistic about it and how confident are you that this gets resolved in the right way i'm confident it'll get resolved there's nobody stands to gain by not resolving it you know or at least the vast majority of people stand to gain by resolving it so and is there is there a plan b or you're like 100 percent you know don't think about that. Stay focused <laughs> on the positive. Fair <laughs> enough. So, so uh, thank you a lot for doing all this. Just of kind course. of really quick. What's the, you know, once you get past this, do you have is there an agenda? You have something in your mind about the future, or you just uh, we're really on the next turn. The, you know, the, at, at once with this behind us, I think we start thinking about kind of a grand vision for the company. There's there's a tremendous amount of execution to do. I mean. We will be, you know, doubling down on our advertising, our sort of monetization efforts. There's a lot of work, just plain execution to be done there. But you know, we see an opportunity to really redefine radio and do it globally and do it uh, in every musical genre for all ages and shapes and sizes. And to, at the same time, change, I think, the plight of the working musician, which is a personal objective of mine. You know, I my my desire is that one day, uh, Pandora is so large uh, and effective that the day your song gets added as a working musician is the day you become professional because it just instantly gets blasted out to this huge uh, audience of awaiting patrons that, that Pandora connects you with. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, I listen anyhow, but next time mm -hmm. I listen to know the story behind it. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Thanks a lot. My pleasure. That's all for my show with Tim. If you haven't already, of course, go to Pandora, listen to some music. And while you're at it, if you haven't been paid by your customers, make sure you uh, check out my sponsor who made the show possible, FreshBooks. You can either get a discount to use it to invoice your clients by going to our site, VentureVoice.com, or signing up there and use the discount code Venture. Thanks again for tuning in. Make sure you come to our site, VentureVoice.com, leave a comment. A lot of time the guests come back to our site to answer questions from our listeners, so it's a great chance to interact. Plus, I read everything. And look forward to uh, connecting with you all for the next show. Thanks to Eddie Lebaton for putting this show together and to Yaron Gali for letting me use his studio. Until next time, this is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.